the Holy Spirit says, A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you, his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, Paul declared this truth about God in Acts 17, 24, and 25. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since, catch this, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything, everything we have is a gift from a merciful God. Every blessing we experience in this life is a direct result of God showing mercy to us. You and I have breath in our lungs today because God intentionally and mercifully gave it to us. God has shown us his mercy, and he has shown us his mercy in all of the blessings of life so that we would glorify him with all of the blessings of life. He's given us breath in our lungs so that we would praise him with the breath that he has given us. He gave us life so we would give him glory. This is our purpose. This is why God made us. This is why God blesses us and shows us his mercy. And in many ways, our fall into sin as humanity has interrupted the glorious purpose that God has given us. Not only do we sin and not give God the glory that he deserves, but also death 
interferes with this purpose. After all, God gives us life so that we could give him glory. But because of the entrance of death into humanity, death poses a threat to the purpose God has given us. He gave us life so we could give him glory, and death threatens to end the life that he gave us. So then, in light of this truth that God gave us life so we would give him glory, it's all the more true that God raised Jesus so we would give him glory. God raised Jesus to life so that he could raise us to life. And not only did God give us temporary life and breath to praise him, he gives his people in Christ eternal life so that we would praise him. And what we see in Psalm 30 is a foreshadowing of this truth that God gives his people eternal life in Christ so that we could praise him. King David writes about a time that God delivered him from death And he therefore calls on the saints to praise God because God delivered him from death. So in light of that, the main thing I want us to see in Psalm 30 today is that our king was delivered from death. So we would declare our dedication to the deliverer. Our king was delivered from death so we would declare our dedication to the deliverer. I pray that we'll see this truth unfold as we walk through Psalm 30. But if we're going to understand Psalm 30, first we have to consider the the, the superscription, that note that's at the beginning of this psalm before verse 1. If you've ever bought a piece of furniture that you had to assemble yourself, you you may know what it's like to open the box and take out one of the pieces and think, what in the world is this going to do? But, you know, you hang on to it. You don't throw it out uh, because, you know, eventually the instructions, if you follow the instructions, uh, eventually the instructions are going to tell you how this piece that you don't understand will ultimately fit into this, uh, this item. Well, As we look at this superscription of Psalm 30, this note at the beginning, I'm going to give you some pieces, and they're not going to make sense up front. They're not going to make sense until later. But promise me you won't throw them away. Hang on to them so that we can come back to them once we've walked through the psalm. Well, so look at that, that, that superscription. It says, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. So this is a song that was written to be sung at the dedication of the temple. And uh, this could be a psalm written by David for the temple that his son Solomon eventually built. Uh, it could be that this psalm uh, was used years later after the exiles returned from Babylon and when the second temple was built at, at that dedication. Uh, in fact, eventually Psalm 30 became associated with uh, the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah which is the Feast of Dedication of the Temple, which began to be observed in the 2nd century B.C. Uh, The the word here, translated temple, is actually the Hebrew word for house. So this could even be referring not to a temple at all, but to the house of David. Or it could be a combination of these, uh, play on words. Now, that being said, there are at least 15 people in the room who I know 
will know the answer to the question that I'm about to ask. Where else in the Bible do we see a play on words with the word house for house of God and house for house of David? Second Samuel, what chapter? I know that, what, where? Seven, thank you, there you go, all right. Uh, yeah, Second Samuel 7. Um, so uh, you don't have to turn there, but just to summarize, Second Samuel 7 begins with, by the way, in case you, in case you missed it, we have a Second Samuel Bible study going on. And I know I've seen hum- warm bodies in those rooms studying Second Samuel 7, and so you, you know, maybe you're just, you're just shy to speak up. Um, but yeah, Second Samuel 7 begins with David, and David's sad. Because here he lives in this house made of cedars, this permanent house, but the place that God dwelt was a tent. Uh, And so he decides, I'm going to build this permanent house for God. I'm going to build a temple. But God responds to David and he says, "I, I didn't ask you to build me a house, David. Instead, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to make you a house, not a building, not a physical structure. A house meaning a dynasty. It's going to be an eternal dynasty. A house that will last forever. And he also promised, I'm going to give you a son as part of this dynasty. And your son is going to build a house for me. Okay, so to sum it up, here's the pieces that we are going to come back to later. Again, this is a song for the dedication of the house. God promised a house for David. God promised David a son who would build a house for God. Those are the pieces. Hold on to those. Now let's get into Psalm 30. Uh, So Psalm 30 is a personal song of thanksgiving. David begins in the first five verses praising Yahweh for deliverance from a near-death experience. Then in verses 6 through 10, he thinks back to what it was like to be in that near-death experience and needing deliverance. And then finally, in verses 11 and 12, he closes by again thanking Yahweh for delivering him. So first, we're going to look at David's praise for deliverance in verses 1 through 5. Uh, Let's just read the first three verses again. David writes, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So David praises Yahweh for delivering him from death. In fact, he says in verse 3, You have brought up my soul from Sheol. Well, Sheol is the grave. David is saying, you raised me from the dead. Now, of course, we know David wasn't literally resurrected, but he exaggerates uh, to make the point that he was so near death when Yahweh spared him, it was as if he was resurrected. Death was so certain that it was as if Yahweh resurrected him when he delivered him from this situation. Uh, David uh, uses this picture in verse 1 that Yahweh drew him up like you would draw up water from a well. This is the kind of deliverance that God has given him. David also says in verse 1 that 
Yahweh did not let David's foes rejoice over him. As we see often in the Psalms, if, if David's circumstance had led to his death, even if the enemies weren't the cause of his death, if just his circumstances led to his death, his enemies still would be glad to see him fall and would rejoice over his demise. But Yahweh spared David not only from death, but also from the shame that would come from his death before the eyes of his enemies. In verse 2, David says that Yahweh healed him. Now, we're not really sure what the circumstances were, but it may be that this near-death experience was a, a bodily illness. The point, though, is that David was near death. He cried to Yahweh for help, and Yahweh delivered his anointed king from death. And because of Yahweh's deliverance, David calls on God's people to praise in verses 4 and 5. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. David encourages the the saints, his, his fellow Israelites that praise and thank their God, Yahweh, because of how he demonstrated his character in David's situation. Uh, David says his near-death experience was caused by God's anger. As we'll continue to see in Psalm 30, uh, this this near-death experience was Yahweh's response to David's sin. And what we see is that God was righteously angry at David's sin. But David here celebrates because the anger Yahweh demonstrated was only for a moment. On the other hand, Yahweh's favor is for a lifetime. Yes, God is angry at sin. Yes, he disciplines those he loves for a time, but he will never stop showing favor to his covenant people. David's experience was sorrowful like a night of weeping, but he rejoiced when morning came and God's mercy and deliverance came to him. So David calls on God's people to praise Yahweh for what he's done for him, to praise Yahweh because momentary suffering from sin leads to eternal joy in the Lord's favor. This is the grace and deliverance of Yahweh, anger to favor, weeping to rejoicing, shame to honor, night to mourning, death to life. This is a deliverer who is worthy of praise. And so David gives Yahweh praise for deliverance. Well then, like I said, in in verses 6 through 10, David then thinks back to what it was like to be in the middle of that near-death experience. He, He reflects on his need for deliverance, his need for deliverance. And, and he, he writes from the perspective of what it was like to be in that situation. Look at verses 6 and 7. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. Again, David's near-death experience was Yahweh's response to David's sin. And the sin that David seems to have committed here is self-confidence. He experienced great prosperity. And so he said boastfully, 
I'll never be moved. But as David writes Psalm 30, what he knows in hindsight is that it was only ever by Yahweh's favor that he was established like a strong, immovable mountain. As soon as Yahweh hid his face, removed his favor, this proud man that thought he was immovable was all of a sudden dismayed and driven nearly to the point of death. David had gotten so comfortable with how well things were going for him, he began to think he was the cause of it. He began to feel entitled to the blessings that he was experiencing. But as soon as God turned away the favor of his face, David realized just how dependent on God he actually was. And he became aware of this sinful attitude in his heart. Do you know this attitude in your heart? Have you gotten so comfortable with the ways that God has blessed you that you've started to believe that you're the cause of those blessings? Do you ever feel entitled? Do you forget sometimes that you deserve nothing but God's anger and that every good thing we have is a gift of God's mercy. May we never say in our prosperity, I'll never be moved. May we always remember that everything we have is a gift of God's mercy. And when we do see that sinful self-confidence rearing its head in our hearts, may we cry out to God for mercy. When David realized his sin and his need for mercy, that's what he did. He cried out to Yahweh. Look at verses 8 through 10. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. David turns to the Lord. He pleads for mercy. He he prays for the mercy of forgiveness because he sinned against Yahweh. But not only that, he prays for the mercy of deliverance because he is experiencing the anger of Yahweh that's led to his weeping and, and that has brought him near death. And he makes his case, God, if I'm dead, what good can I do? If I'm dead, how can I tell others how good you are? David asks Yahweh for deliverance so that he could remain alive and praise him. And isn't that exactly what we see happen in Psalm 30? Yahweh did show David this mercy. He did deliver him. And David did respond with praise and thanks with the life and breath that God returned to him. So David closes the psalm with thanks for deliverance in verses 11 and 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Yahweh has transformed David's life. He's returned his favor to David. When David was experiencing God's anger in his sin, 
he mourned. He wore sackcloth, the clothing of grief. But now that he's experienced God's favor and deliverance, he's dancing with joy. Yahweh has clothed him with gladness now. And and notice, Yahweh did all of this for David. Not ultimately to benefit David, though it benefited David. Ultimately, he did it so that David would turn around and praise him. David refers to his glory, which is a way of describing his soul. David was delivered from death so his soul could declare the praise of his deliverer. The king was delivered from death so that he could declare the praise of his deliverer. And he invites the saints to join him and sing the praises of the God who delivered him from death. So you may be asking now, what does any of this have to do with the dedication of the temple? Remember those pieces I handed to you before? Now that we've seen Psalm 30, this this is a very personal testimony of one particular situation that happened to David. It's the story of something that happened one time. Why should God's people sing this song at an occasion as monumental as the dedication of the temple? Why, why this song? Okay, so let's remember those pieces that I handed to you before. God promised a house for David, an eternal dynasty. And God promised David a son who would build a house for God, a temple. And then consider what we've seen in Psalm 30. David faced death because of sin, and God delivered him from death by his mercy. How do those things fit together? Well, let me show you in the text that I think brings all this together the best. Turn with me to John chapter 2. Let's read John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. The Passover of the the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And, you, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When God promised David an eternal dynasty, he was ultimately promising 
Jesus, who would reign as king of God's people forever, would reign as king of the house of David. When God promised David a son who would build a temple, the son he was ultimately promising was Jesus. And the temple he was promising was Jesus' body. And the constructing of that temple would be Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So think about this. Think about this. For nearly a thousand years, the people of God sang Psalm 30 about their king's resurrection while they were thinking about the temple. They sang the song about the king's resurrection while their minds were thinking about the temple. God was preparing them for the ultimate anointed king because the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise that they had in mind, the promise of a temple, the fulfillment that they were waiting for would come through the resurrection of the king, the resurrection of God's son, the anointed king, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of Psalm 30 in a way that David, even in his life, couldn't fully embody. Because Jesus didn't face a near-death experience, he actually died. He actually went to the grave. He suffered death under the anger of God. His father hid his face from him. Uh, Jesus didn't suffer for his own sin, though. Jesus didn't suffer like David. David suffered as an example of, to his people, Jesus suffered as a substitute for his people. Jesus experienced the Father's anger for a moment so that his people could experience his favor for a lifetime and for eternity. Jesus was brought up from death so that by the mercy of God, the people of God could be delivered from death. Jesus was delivered from death so that Psalm 30 could be our testimony. That through faith in Christ, we can say with David, you have turned my mourning into dancing because of the resurrection of Christ. And taking this idea of how Jesus fulfills the temple even further, now, this Jesus who raised up the temple of his body to deliver his people, has made his people the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now the people of Christ are a spiritual house dedicated to the Lord. We can offer spiritual sacrifices to God as His house, and God accepts our offerings because He delivered King Jesus from death. So what do these spiritual sacrifices look like? Well, just consider the words of Psalm 30. We can extol the Lord. We can sing praises as his saints. We can give thanks to his holy name. We can dance and be glad. We can sing his praise and not be silent. We can give thanks to him forever. Now, one of the things just biblically we do need to acknowledge is that 
the spiritual sacrifices that we offer as God's house, uh, they don't stop just with words. Uh, You can think about what Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In Christ, as his house that has been raised with Christ, uh, we should offer to God everything we are as a spiritual sacrifice to him. Uh, Our spiritual sacrifices should be more than just words, more than just singing. But our spiritual sacrifices should not be less than singing. If we become overly focused on the truth that worship is more than singing, we can miss just how important singing is to God. I mean, just think about this. The longest book in the Bible, the Psalms. A song book. One of the most often repeated commands of Scripture that God's people are to obey is sing. And if we just look at Psalm 30 and we ask, what's the number one thing that Psalm 30 explicitly commands the people of God to do? Sing praises. And so here in Psalm 30, David points us to the truth that our king was delivered from death, so we would declare our dedication to the deliverer. And David explicitly calls God's people to do that, to declare their dedication to the deliverer by singing. Uh, Here, as we've been looking at the Psalms over and over, we see this command to sing. And here in Psalm 30, we're commanded to sing again. And and this is the clear response. David wants God's people to obey in in response to this truth that the king has been delivered from death. So why is singing so important? Why is singing so important for the people of God? Well, I'd like us to consider four reasons why singing is so important to God. First, singing engages our whole person. In Luke 10, 27, Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. One of the unique things about God's creation of singing that he designed for his people to give him glory is that singing engages every part of who we are as humans. Singing engages our intellect as we consider the truth we sing. Singing engages our will as we express our desires in song. Singing engages our conscience as we confess our sin and Jesus' righteousness. Singing engages our emotions as our affections are expressed through music. Singing engages our physical body as our lungs and diaphragm and vocal cords and lips and tongue declare these truths and declare the praise of God. A God who delivers us from death is worthy of everything we are and singing engages our whole person. So singing the praise of God is a fitting response to the God who delivers us from death in Christ. Singing engages our whole person. Second, singing unifies a congregation in their declaration. Singing unifies a congregation in their declaration. 
Paul described in Romans 15, 6, how he desired that that church would glorify God with one voice. And he was talking about more than singing, but consider how singing unifies a congregation. One of the other unique things about God's gift of singing, his, his creation of singing, is singing's ability to unify a group of people in one statement. There is no other medium of communication that comes close to how singing unifies. I'll prove it. Imagine, I just said, okay, let's all declare our praises to God right now. Go. Praise the Lord. <laughs> uh, what, what would happen? I mean, we, you know, we'd all be praising, um, but would our praise be unified? I mean, we would be praising the same God, hopefully, um, at the same time. But, I mean, it would be kind of a cacophony of sound, and no one would be able to tell what the other person was saying. Okay, but imagine that instead I said, let's all praise God with the same words. How great thou art. Well, then, if I said, let's all say how great thou art together. Come on. How great thou art. Well, that was unified, right? I mean, we were praising God at the same time and with the same words. But could we get more unified than that? Yes. What if we didn't just say the same words at the same time, but we actually said the same words in the same rhythm and even moved our voices up and down along the same pitches as one another? Well, then we would be completely unified, as unified as we could possibly be in declaring a statement together. And if we were to do that, what would that be called? Singing, right? Singing, as God's creation, has a unique ability to unify a group of people in making a statement with one voice. It provides a way for the congregation of the people of God to make a declaration in unity like no other medium of communication can. Third, singing teaches us about who God is and how we should respond to him. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is an indispensable part of God's strategy for how he teaches his people. Have you ever thought about that? Singing is an indispensable part of God's strategy for how he teaches his people. And it's no surprise as we consider again the way that God gave us the creation of singing. He created human beings in such a way that music has a unique ability to teach us, again, in a way that other mediums fall short in this regard. When we sing uh, a truth, it is easier to remember than if we just hear it or even if we say it or write it down. Uh, I mean, there's a, a reason why we talk about earworms and getting songs stuck in our head. Um, Kurt Hoffman and I were just having a conversation this morning about a song that he would never have been able to tell you that he knew, but as soon as I played it this morning, he was like, oh my goodness, I remember that song. There is something about memory and about music, about the way that God has created humans and the way he has created music. And when we sing, we are teaching one another about who God is. 
the, the Bible calls us to sing, not just to God, but sing to one another. We declare the, the truths of Scripture when we sing. In fact, often our theology is formed more by what we sing than the sermons that we hear. Not only do we teach one another about the truth of who God is, when we sing, we are also teaching one another and teaching ourselves how we ought to respond to God. When we sing the praises of God together, we are forming our hearts. We're building instincts, intuitions, spiritual reflexes. We are teaching ourselves how to respond to God even when we're not singing together. When we sing, for instance, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. We are training our affections to find joy in the coming of Christ. And doing so develops in us a mindset that we carry with us outside of this time of gathered worship. We grow less attached to this life and this world in part because of how we train our hearts to long for Christ's coming by the songs that we sing. Singing is a powerful tool for teaching by God's design. And then finally, singing makes a statement to those who hear us. Now, singing literally makes a statement. We declare truth through song. Uh, In fact, Psalm 96, 2 and 3 uh, say, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. When those who know Christ gather and sing the gospel together, and those who don't know Christ who are here, hear what we are declaring, we're preaching the gospel to them. Uh, But not only does singing literally make a statement, we also make a statement by the way we sing. Thinking about Psalm 30, uh, the praise David is calling for, the song that he sees as the natural, the direct response to being raised from death. This is what he thought was the fitting evaluation for how merciful God had been to him. God had shown him tremendous mercy, raised him from the dead, given him another chance at life, and he calls on the saints to praise God in light of that. And so their praise was going to be a matter of how they evaluated what God had done for David. The way the people would sing in response would show how much that deliverance means to them. Likewise, the way that you sing makes a statement about how much the resurrected Christ means to you. Believers, we are teaching those who don't believe in Christ. We're teaching them something about God by the way we sing. Fellow church members, we we are teaching our brothers and sisters in Christ something about God by the way we sing. Fathers, you are teaching your children something about God by the way that you sing. Now, sadly, 
you might be teaching your children or whoever you might, might, might hear you sing, you might be teaching them that Jesus isn't worthy of our affection. You might be teaching them that Jesus is a joke. Or you might be teaching them that Jesus is a supreme treasure worthy of worship with every fiber of our being. I was blessed growing up that I got to go to church and every Sunday morning I sat, ne- I sat next to my dad who sang passionately about Jesus. More than anything he looked me in the eye and taught me or taught me in, in our time of family devotions or, or sitting at, at a table just by his example, I learned the worthiness, the supreme treasure that Jesus is. And, you know, growing up, I didn't always get it. I didn't always understand. But now I realize that just by his example, I was learning that there is no one like Jesus. We sing because singing makes a statement about the worthiness of God. Our king was delivered from death, so we would declare our dedication to the deliverer. And we declare our dedication to the deliverer by more than singing. We declare that by the way we live our lives. We declare that by the way we treat people. We declare that even in the privacy of our own hearts before God. We declare it in every aspect of our life. But don't miss the clear call of Psalm 30 to the people of God to sing. The importance of singing for how it teaches us. The importance of singing for how it unifies us. The importance of singing for how it forms us and shapes us. God uses this gift to teach us how we can declare our dedication to the Deliverer, not only in song, but to declare our dedication to the Deliverer in every aspect of life. And so the more that we press into the reality that our king was delivered from death, the more we press into the truth that through faith in him, we are delivered from death, would more and more that reality, that truth as it's impressed upon our hearts, be met by songs of praise. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Let's pray together. Father, you are worthy. You are worthy. You saved us, you delivered us, so that we would proclaim your excellencies. So that we would proclaim your excellencies in all of life. And Lord, it starts as we gather together as your people, your congregation, and sing and declare the truth of who you are and what you have done. Lord, we engage everything we are in praising you for resurrecting our King and resurrecting us with him. Lord, we want to, with one voice, praise you as as the saints for how you have resurrected Christ and resurrected us.
Lord, we want, we want our songs to, to take that truth and, 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 and plant it deeper into our hearts and form us and shape us as worshipers who don't just worship in a song on a Sunday, but who worship with every aspect of our life. And Lord, we want to declare to those who see us and hear us just how good you are. And so, Lord, would you continue to press upon our hearts the truth that you have raised our King from the dead. And would we meet that truth with the praise that you are worthy of. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.